Uh, I think he called me Freddy Orzo, which is a pasta, if you are familiar with that. I know he's Italian, but like that's a reach, bro. Whatever, Greek, whatever, same thing, same thing, doesn't matter. I'm American, so everyone, and if you're not American, then you're everything else. Anyways, let's talk about more important things. Uh, like he mentioned, I'm from Northview. My role at Northview is I'm the pastor of community groups. So uh, in, a, in a bigger church, that is a, a specific job because it's really hard to connect. So my job is to help people gather in 10 to 15 a number of 10 to 15 person groups to study the Bible, pray with one another, um, grow into the image of Christ. So I love my job. I'm really happy there. Uh, I'm married to Rebecca, and we have one little boy, five months old. There he is, Isaiah, in all his curly-haired glory. Uh, He does have my dimples, but pretty much everything else is from mom. But very cute baby. We're really grateful, enjoying the the first few months of, of parenthood together and then fatherhood for me. Uh, I already mentioned that I'm American. I grew up in the States, and I went to a a public school, and uh, if you know anything about high school in the United States, football is king, right? Everyone plays, and if you don't play, you go to the game and you cheer, Uh, and we have a tradition called homecoming, and homecoming is kind of late September, early October. It's always at home, hence the name homecoming, and it's always a rivalry game against like a a, a team, a school that you hate. So for us, it was South Medford. We hated them. They had the same color as us, and they were a slightly bigger school with ritzier kids, so obviously there's some trash talk. So we hated them, and that was homecoming. We knew when South Medford shows up and we play them, that's homecoming. And to kind of pump people up for the game on Friday, uh, we would do a spirit week. So every single day, there would be a different theme leading up to Friday, where it's game day, everyone's hyped. And the, the themes varied, right? So it was like, there would be the whiteout day where you dress like in all white. There would be 80s day, or I guess 2021 day, like you dress basically the same. But it, you know, you dress in your broad pants and chunky shoes, which I'm like, that's literally today. Uh, we would do uh, neon day, which was always fun too. Uh, the, my favorite one was what we called Civil War day. And there, there's two state universities in Oregon, University of Oregon, the Ducks, University of Oregon State, the Beavers, and every single kid had to wear the t-shirt or the sweatshirt or the like sweatpants that matched the school that you were supporting. And inevitably, it's high school. There's some kids that nonconformists, like, and they don't pick a side. And there would be kids who would show up and they would wear like black or gray. They're like, I didn't choose a team. I didn't choose a team, right? Oregon's wearing yellow and, and green ducks, Oregon State, orange and black, beavers, and they would always make the dumb joke, I find myself to be kind of a a platypus, right? I have a bill, but I look like a beaver, so I'm both, I'm both, I'm neutral, right? And I always remember being so frustrated that there's no neutral, you take a side. That is a massive overreaction for a football game, but that image is, is very common in our world today. We live in a world where people avoid taking sides. No one wants to take sides, right? We all want to be Switzerland. We all want that middle ground where we kind of get along with everyone and we smile and we're nice and everyone gets along. But the world is not like that. And when we look at the Bible, the Bible challenges that way of thinking, particularly Psalm 2. We're going to be looking at Psalm 2 today. And Psalm 2 blows up the idea that there's anything such as neutral. There, there is no middle ground. There's two kinds of people. Those who follow King Jesus, those who do not. 
Psalm 2 teaches us that Jesus is king over the entire earth. Or we're going to look at this in two ways. First, there is a universal rebellion against the one king. And second, there's a universal reign of this king. So, Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Right, so we're going to start with universal rebellion. Right, so this psalm, it's Old Testament book, right, sung by uh, Jewish people thousands of years ago. And it is written in a different time for a different world. So the way Old Testament Israel worked is they were what is called a theocracy. God ruled over his people through the laws he had given. So obviously we have the Ten Commandments, which are moral laws. But Israel was given 613 total laws, which governed most of the way they lived. And that form of government, theocracy, God ruling the people. So that's different from us, like a democracy where the people have a voice, the people rule, or an autocracy where there's a single individual who rules over a people. So in Old Testament Israel, there is no division between religion and politics. It's kind of the same thing. In Old Testament Israel, uh, kind of looked at the world around them and was like, you know what? We like having God in charge, but we also want a human king. They, they looked at the nations around them. They looked at the other forms of government and they said, we kind of want to be like them. So they have human kings. We would like a human king. God, can you give us a human king? And the motivation for this was that in, in ancient times, people believed that a ruler had kind of divine authority or sometimes even a ruler was in and of themselves divine. The, the reason for this was if you were going to be in charge of something, if you were going to rule a people, you needed, you needed power. You needed the people to gather around you. And the way to legitimize your rule was to claim, I am God, or I am a son of God, or God literally brought me here. And Israel's looking at all the other nations that are doing that and says, well, we have a God, and our God is better than their God, so God, can you give us a king that will lead our people and, you know, fight our wars and stuff like that? This idea was not unique to their world. It has per, like, persevered in human society. So Greek mythology, if you're familiar with the character Hercules, right? It, it's, a, it's not a real story, but Hercules was descended from Zeus, right? Zeus was his father. He was a child of the gods. That's what gave him his incredible strength, right? A, a, a ruler of people imbued with divine qualities, during World War II, Emperor Hirohito, the leader of the Japanese Empire, was described as divine. So part of what made the Japanese Empire spread out was that they believed that God was on their side. Their ruler was, was literally a son of God. So they were going out and, and spreading the, the, their empire, right? The, the idea of divine authority legitimizes rulers and gives them kind of the umph they need to, to get out there, to go and spread the borders, and Israel looked at that around them and said, we want the same thing. We want a king. And they got one. And in 1 Samuel 8, we learned that they, they say, God, give us a king. God says, fine, I'll give you what you're asking for. I'll give you a king. If you read through the Old Testament, their first king was named Saul, and he was kind of a bum. Like he, he kind of obeyed God, but mostly didn't. And eventually God said, Saul, I'm judging you. I'm taking the kingdom from you. The second guy, probably the most well-known character from the Old Testament, David, that's right. One person over there knows their Bible. David. David was the guy who was raised up. And David is the guy who wrote this psalm, right? So David was, was a king who gathered all of Israel together. Up until him, they were kind of divided. 
after Saul, they were still a little bit divided, and David brought all of Israel unity and continued defeating all of the enemies, spread the borders. Israel became great underneath his rule. So they had prosperity like never before. He's gathering materials to build a temple. He's writing songs, right? That's why we have such a big Psalter, 150. He did not write all 150, but he wrote a massive portion of them. And David wrote this song about himself, right? It's about a king put there by God who rules God's people. So David wrote about himself, right? And every king who followed in David's line loved this song. Like this became their walk-in music, right? If you've ever watched like a WWE match or professional sports of any kind, right? When, uh, when a baseball pitcher comes in, they come into a song, right? When John Cena walks in, he walks into a song, right? And they're always cool songs. It's always like, I'm the best, I'm undefeated, you can't see me, right? There, there's always something of that nature. Psalm 2 was the, king, was the song that all the kings wanted to walk into. When they became king, right, when they took the throne, or as they're walking into the throne room, they're like, hey, play that for me again. Psalm 2, right? I'm the king. I'm going to crush the bad guys. I know there's this situation where people are in rebellion against God, but like, I'm, God put me here, and I'm going to put down the bad guys, so this song functioned in a particular way in Old Testament Israel, but we're here today, right? So it, it doesn't function in the same way in, in our world. We're 2,000 years removed from this, 3,000 years removed from this. But this psalm teaches us a worldview. It taught them a worldview, and it teaches us the same thing. So I'm going to give you the textbook definition of a worldview, the foundational cognitive, affective, and evaluative assumptions and frameworks a group of people make about the nature of reality, which they use to order their lives, which is a nerd way of saying how the world works. A worldview helps you understand how the world works. Psalm 2 is a song that formed the worldview of Israel. Psalm 2 is a song that should form the worldview of us as Christians. It helps us understand that question, how does the world work? And when you look at Psalm 2, specifically verses 1 to 3, it teaches us that there is a universal rebellion against the one God. So verse 1, the nations rage. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves against everyone, people everywhere, rulers, regular people. They are against this king. The situation in our world is that people don't like the idea of God having authority over their lives. So we'll hear phrases like, I know best. I know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to find myself. I'm doing me. We use these ways to talk about ourselves, and they show that our worldview does not match what the Bible teaches we ought to, to have. What governs our behavior? Me. Like, what I, what I want, what I need, what I, what I should do. What directs our goals and our dreams? Me. We think in a selfish way because we live in a society that thinks in the same way. All, every single person is selfish in this manner. And Psalm 2 teaches us this is a universal rebellion. People are this way, rebelling against the authority of God. Elsewhere, Scripture will call this phenomenon, this selfishness, this rebellion against God, sin. Sin, defined biblically, is lawlessness. God says, do this, and people say, no thanks, I will do this. Sin is lawlessness, according to 1 John 3, 4. Everyone does what they want. That's the way the world works, right? Romans 3 makes it even more clear, and it says this, what then, are we Jews any better off? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Every single person, lawless, every single person goes their own way. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Psalm uh, 2 raises the idea in the first three verses. 1 John 3 makes it more clear. Romans 3 brings it home. Every single person is born in rebellion against God. They want to go their own way. They don't like his rules. They don't need his rules. And this doesn't just uh, stay in our early childhood. It comes with us as we grow, right? So children, when you get a couple kids together and you play the classic game, Simon Says, right? Who wants to be Simon? Yeah, that's right. Every single kid yeah, it makes you a kid. But every single kid wants to be Simon, right? When you play follow the leader, every single kid wants to be the leader. And as we grow, that phenomenon continues. Everyone wants to be the boss. Everyone wants to be the king. Everyone wants to be in charge. This idea that everyone wants to be king is described most clearly in verse 3, right? With that phrase, they cast away the cords. These rulers who are in rebellion, who are raging against the, the one king, are saying, let's cast the cords off. It's time to be free of all these rules, of this oppressive religion, of this way of thinking. And the world we live in says everyone can be king. It's not just that you want to be. You actually can be. Go do you. We call it relativism, right? Whatever is good for you, whatever works for you, that is true. And that is what is described in verse 3. They cast the cords away. God's not in charge here. God does not define things now. I do. We do. So every single person then is a tiny kingdom. They're kingdom of self. And they're rebelling against the one God. We, again, we use phrases, find yourself, be authentic. We listen to songs that make this concrete in our minds, right? I'm not going to sing them because I have a very bad voice. And it's more bad after preaching one sermon already. Uh, Simba and the great song from The Lion King. I just can't wait to be king, right? Dreaming of the day when he's in charge and he no longer has to listen to Mufasa because his dad is a jerk and doesn't know best. And our kids sing it and our grown-ups sing it. The philosopher MC Hammer says, can't touch this, right? I, you cannot tell me how to live and then moves in his parachute pants, right? The great thinker, Beyonce, who run the world? Girls girls because she is a girl right that's how we think right and that's the music that comes into our heads to form our worldview I'm king I can be king I will be king I'm in charge no one will tell me how to live and the bible gives us psalm 2 which is also a song that gives us a completely different worldview that in fact there actually is a king and that if you listen to the message of our world, you are in rebellion against that king. You are not the one true king. Psalm 2, written by David, about David, but not just about David, right? The rest of, if you read through the rest of the Bible, it makes it clear this song is about someone greater than David, right? There are psalms in, in the Old Testament that are written about kings, so probably David, but they, they have this language that makes it seem like they're future-oriented. There's, there's someone greater, right? And all of this can be traced back to 2 Samuel 7. In 2 Samuel 7, God made an outlandish promise to King David. 
where he said, I, I'm, I'm going to do something great with your line. And it, it reads as follows. He shall build a house for my name. Right? This is God speaking to David about one of David's sons. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be my son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who, put, who I put it away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That sounds like that can't be David because David died. So David is writing a song in Psalm 2 where he has this promise in mind from God where he's saying there will come a day when Israel will get a greater king. There will come a day when actually the world will get a greater king. And the New Testament takes this language and says, Jesus is that king. If you read through the New Testament, this is the message over and over and over again. The king we've been waiting for since David has arrived. Mark 1, when he came up out of the water, Jesus at his baptism comes up out of the water. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the language of Psalm 2. And God is saying this to Jesus to show the people, this is the guy, the king whose throne will be established forever. Paul, preaching in Acts 13, makes the same case. We bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What God implicitly said by quoting Psalm 2, Paul makes even more clear by expressly or explicitly saying, this is Psalm 2. Jesus is the fulfillment of this hope. Paul claims the entire storyline of the Bible is about this Jesus who died and resurrected. Jesus is king over the whole world. And if Jesus is king over the whole world, anyone who does not acknowledge that is in rebellion against the one king. So we are all faced with a decision, right? You need to choose your side. Psalm 2 destroys any, any manner of thinking that says there's kind of a middle ground, a neutral. Right? That's the way we think, right? People are searching. People are spiritual. They're, they're not opposed to Christianity. They're not opposed to God. They're just not sure. Psalm 2 has two categories. There are those who follow the king, and there's everyone else. You have to choose your side in accordance to this king. There is only two postures towards the king. You follow him or you reject him. We're going to learn a little bit more about what happens. But in, in verse 12, if you follow him, we're told you receive blessing. In verses 9 and 12, you're told if you reject him, you receive wrath. Everyone has to take a side. There is one king. Everyone is in rebellion against him. And they have to choose. I'm going to follow this king. I will persist in rebellion, and everyone starts in the kingdom of self, right? We live in this kind of world. We think in this way. So we have to make the decision, who are we going to follow? Following Jesus is a choice, right? Every single person, the way every single person begins to do this is with the simple phrase, help me, or I, I will follow you, Jesus. And they say it, or they pray it, or they might not even be bold enough. They think it, and in that moment, they say, I, Jesus, you're the king. I, I will follow you. I don't even know how it's going to look, but I'm, I'm going to try. 
Everyone starts the exact same way. They have to make that choice, right? Psalm 2 is presenting us with this reality that every single person has to make that choice. And if they don't make the choice to follow King Jesus, they've already made their choice. They're already in rebellion against that king. So can anyone make, cho- like, can anyone make that choice to, like, to follow King Jesus? Is it really that simple? Yes, it is really that simple. Like, they just have to say it or think it or pray it. But before someone can ever do that, they have to hear it. Like, they have to know about this King Jesus, who is actually the king. And they have to know that they have obligations to this king. So your friends, your family, your coworkers, all the people that think they're in the middle but are actually in rebellion against God, how are they going to make that choice? Like, they have to be taught. They have to be told about King Jesus. Right? And, and for us in this moment, the temptation is to think, like, uh, dude, I'm not a pastor. Like, I, I don't know the Bible well enough. Like, you're quoting all these verses all over the place. Like, how am I going to teach this person? And what if they ask a question I don't know? And we have all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. But the scriptures give us hope. Acts 18, 9 to 11 says this. The Lord said to Paul in one night, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul was told this in the midst of significant ministry frustration when he could have just said, God, no one is converting. Like, there's, what is the point? And God tells him, like, you don't have to do anything fancy. You just talk to them. Do not be silent. The people in your life who do not yet know Jesus have already chosen their side and they need to choose rightly. And the only way they will choose rightly is if you talk to them. So you must. It's not should. It's not can. You must talk to the people in your life who have not yet chosen to follow Jesus. Every single person needs to make that choice because there is a universal rebellion against this king. But this king... He is reigning, right? He, like, that's the point of Psalm 2. So let's talk about the universal reign of this king. I'll read you the rest of the psalm, because the rest of the psalm focuses on that, that Jesus is actually king. He's actually in charge of the whole thing. Psalm 2, starting in verse 4. He who sits in heaven, or he who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 is focused on this idea that the king, that Jesus is reigning over the whole thing. But that, you know, that raises a few questions for us. Like, what is the extent of his reign? And how do we actually experience it? Like, how much is he in charge of? And what does it look like in my life? Like, in my normal day-to-day for Jesus to be king. 
Right? And those two questions are kind of what we'll focus on. So there are two options for thinking about the rule of Christ. Like Jesus is king, yes and amen. Psalm 2 makes that explicit. The rest of the Bible makes that explicit. But like, is he king over me? Is he king over the church? Is he king over the world? People, for the most part, kind of fall into two camps, right? He's king over the church, right? So he tells people in the church through the scriptures how they ought to live, right? So God is king over the people of God. Option two is God is king over the whole world. Like, everyone on the planet has an obligation to the king who is in charge of the whole thing. So we often tend to talk about Christianity, about God's reign, as a phenomenon focused on the church, right? God's people got to do what God says. That's kind of that language. But Psalm 2 makes it much bigger. Psalm 2 says, actually, the nations are his heritage. Psalm 2 says that kings and rulers must kiss the sun. Psalm 2 seems to teach that the whole world is God's kingdom, that everything in the world has an obligation to this universal reign of the sun, right? Everyone must kiss the sun, verse 12. That phrase is really significant for us, right? It, it, it's not like when we hear kiss, we think like maybe like the greeting kiss, right? Where you like the two cheeks. Matt probably does that. Um, I certainly do. If someone's not wearing a mask, watch out. But my point here is it, in the language of Psalm 2, it's more like the kiss on a king's ring, or their hand, right? This is a, an image that communicates submission. Like this person that I'm kissing their hand, that I'm bowing before, they're in charge, right? So like our form of it is we salute when, you know, a, a ruler walks in, right? Or people will take their hats off when they hear the anthem being played, or they bow when they're before the queen. Like these are our ways of showing homage, of submitting to a person who's in charge. In Psalm 2, that language is kiss the sun, Everyone must submit to this, this Jesus. They must kiss the son who is king over the entire earth. He's not just king between your ears in the way that you think or in the way that you live as an individual. He's not just king over the church, the way that Christian people together are, are growing, who they are becoming. He's king over the entire world. So what does this reign look like? If Jesus is king over the entire world, over everything, if everyone needs to submit to this ruler, what would it look like for every single person to do that? I think it happens in kind of four steps. First, people have to acknowledge that there, there is no neutral. That if Jesus is king, they're obligated to kiss the son. They're obligated to bow before him. So there, there is no other options in terms of religion. There is no other options in terms of philosophies or way of growing. There is just Jesus and every single person must follow him. That leads to step two. Step two is repentance. Every single person at some point, did not follow Jesus, right? My, my little boy, five months old, not yet a Christian. I hope that one day he makes the decision to repent of the time before he knew Jesus and begins to follow him. Every single person has that point in their life or should have that point in their life because there is no neutral, right? There's no neutral. Every single person must repent of their past rebellion against the king. Step three it leads to transformed affections. If we're following this Jesus, if we're repenting of the past, then we want to obey him. And it's interesting what Psalm 2 commands. Verse 11, we must serve the Lord with fear. And this, this 
captures a lot of the biblical phrase, fear of God. We don't use this phrase very much because fear has a negative connotation, right? We think haunted houses or being in a dark room by yourself and there's a bump in the night, right? We, we think fear and we think bad, but the Bible uses this phrase everywhere. Everywhere, fear of God is a commendable thing. So what does fear of God mean? Fear of God, I think, is a, a combination of awe and attraction mixed with absolute terror. Like those two, three things just merging together, right? It's like when, when you see a thunderstorm, right? And thunder and lightning, and you see the flashes and you hear the cracks. Like if you've ever been in one, it is a weird phenomenon. It feels like the earth is splitting. Like the, the sound of it just echoes for, for like seconds. It's like that, but you're like in a house, like behind a window looking out at it. You're like, if the house gets hit, I will die. But it is like, I'm attracted to it. I want to be closer. It's like when, when people go visit the Grand Canyon or any tall thing, they're like, they walk right to the edge. They're drawn to it. Like, I, I want to be there. But as they're drawn to it, they experience greater and greater terror. Like, if I drop my phone, everything's gone. Like, all my pictures gone. If I fall, I will die. But the phone is worse, right? Like, that, that's the experience. That's the emotion that we live through as we approach something like that. The scriptures speak of God that way. That God is so beautiful so perfect that we're drawn to him. And as we're drawn to him, we realize like, I am nothing like him. And we're mixed with awe at who he is and attraction at being drawn to him and also absolute terror. Like I deserve wrath. Like I, how on earth could I be close to him? The scriptures command, Psalm 2 commands, service to the Lord with fear. That emotional experience is a part of Christian life. We're commanded to serve <clears throat> while enjoying it. This is crazy. Like, this is crazy. We don't think of it in this way, right? We're commanded to give, right? So 2 Corinthians 9 teaches us we should give to the Lord joyfully. We are to give joyfully. Anyone can give, right? You can just open your wallet and give but the command isn't to give. The command is to give joyfully, right? We, when people wrong us, we're actually commanded to forgive them. It is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. Forgiven people forgive others. We're commanded to forgive, but it's not just the forgiveness. We're commanded to be tender-hearted to one another and as an expression of a tenderness, of a softness towards our brothers and sisters, we forgive them. The emotion comes along with the action. Service and fear go together as described here in Psalm 2. When we kiss the sun, that's an emotional experience. Our affections are part of the Christian journey, right? So people make the decision, like there is no neutral. They repent of their past rebellion. They have new affections as they're drawn to who God is. And all of that leads to new behavior. That's the fourth step of, of walking with Jesus, or of obeying God. We're actually commanded to change. Right? That, that is the point of Christian life, right? When we kiss the son, when we're drawn to him, we are actually supposed to serve him. And as we serve him, we become more like him, right? So this includes like growth in, in knowledge, right? So when, when you begin driving, those of you who drive, if you started in BC, you went from not having a license to having an N and then having an 
a regular license where you had no restrictions on you, right? That journey, like what helped you get along each step of the way was driving a bunch, but you actually also had to study the book, right? Like to, to pass the test. Christian life is kind of like that. We grow in knowledge of the commands God has given and we like live them out and we are, we're growing, right? We, we all want to be full-grown drivers, right? Uh, watching my son grow up, he, he does, he's five months old or five and a half months old. He, he can't walk yet, right? He kind of does the army crawl a little bit, but not really well. But watching him struggle to move is a reminder of like motor skills are taught, like, no one just wakes up and is like, I'm really fast at running, or I'm really good at throwing a ball. Like, they have to do it a whole bunch, over and over and over again. And we see kids kind of do this, like, when they play, right? Like, they kind of fumble around through stuff and kind of move funny, but you can see a little bit of potential. And then you teach the kid, like, no, no, this is the correct way to throw a ball or to, to run or to, to whatever action you're teaching them. And then they actually start doing it. And that because they do it so much, they get really good at it right? Or they could get really good at it. Maybe your kid's not athletic. I don't know. But the point is, this kind of trajectory is knowledge that kind of gets lived out. That's the Christian life. You grow in knowledge of who God is, grow in knowledge of what he commands, and you do it a bunch because you're serving with fear, and, and that leads to transformation. The goal of Christian life, ultimately, is transformation. So when we talk about the universal reign of King Jesus— this is what it means for every single person on the planet. Every single person on the planet needs to go through this journey of acknowledging there is no neutral, repenting of their rebellion, having new affections, leading to new behavior. Jesus is king, and every person needs to do that, which means that people will be transformed, right? People will actually be different because of following God, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that you, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. But we sometimes look at that verse and we think it feels like an aspirational goal, right? Like, sure, the Bible says I'm a new creation, but like I know what I'm like, right? And if you're anything like me, right, you, you think to yourself like, I want to transform. Like, I want to follow. I want to serve God with fear. And you decide, you know, I'm not going to get angry. And then you follow a person who inexplicably drives in the passing lane at 98 kilometers an hour. And you're like, nah, I'm mad now. Or you say, like, I'm, I'm not going to get angry. And then your kid does the exact same thing you've told them not to do literally a thousand times. And you raise your voice. And you get angry. And you think to yourself in those moments, like, Oh my goodness, how am I ever going to transform? I cannot even do this. Or you think to yourself, you know what? I, knew, I know I need to be thankful. God has blessed me. God has given me everything that I have is a gift from God. I'm going to be thankful. And then you look outside your house and your neighbor comes home with a brand new car or a brand new camper that they got to use again. It's going to their cabin again. And you look at your life and it is remarkably ordinary and you feel bitter this is our lives, right? We, we look at our experiences. We look at the way we act and we think like, how on earth am I ever gonna live up to this standard, God? Like you've commanded me to serve you with fear. I can't even serve you. And I'm commanded to do it with fear. It feels a little bit hopeless. We drop the ball all the time. Every single one of us continues to fall short. Psalm 2 was written for people like us. God in his mercy gives us a promise, gives us an encouragement at the end of this psalm. 
the very last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Not blessed are those who obey him perfectly. Not blessed are the ones who are like totally transformed and have perfect kids and perfect lives and only speak kindly all the time. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Our God, our King, who demands service, who demands that we kiss him because we owe him that, is the kind of God who allows you to take refuge in him, who even though you fall short, constantly says, just come to me. All you have to do is come to me. And that you, you are blessed, actually, when you come to him. Every single one of us falls short in our pursuit of kissing the sun. And God says, that's okay. I'm gonna pick you up. And you're going to be blessed if you take refuge in me. This king is reigning, like, over the entire, entire world. And like so many people that, that I grew up with, like so many people in my current life, uh, the kids at my high school, were, were, or the kids in my high school uh, during Civil War Day didn't like taking sides, right? They, they would wear gray. They didn't want to be on Team Oregon or Team Oregon State, our world functions in the same way. People in our world are, have the illusion that they can just go through life and just be really nice. But every single person needs to make a decision, right? If Psalm 2 is true, and we believe it's God, God's word, and it is true, every single person needs to choose to follow the king. Everyone needs to take a side. So which side are you on? Choosing Jesus is a one-time thing, and it's a perpetual thing over and over again. So every single day, you have to start with that question, whose side am I on today? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for Psalm 2 that teaches us about King Jesus. Lord, I'm grateful that we are blessed when we take refuge in you. And I pray for the people in my life who have not yet made the decision to take refuge in you. Um, for the people in this room, um, whether there's some in this room already or uh, all the people connected to us who have not yet followed Jesus, Lord, um, they need to. And I pray for them that you do the same thing that you've done for me and every Christian who has ever been a Christian. Change their hearts, Lord, um, that they would follow you and kiss the sun. Um, for us, Father, help us choose you every day. We need your help or we won't make it. So Lord, um, be with your people, we beg. Help us take refuge in you. We ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.